crack in the wall On a visionary flood of alcohol From the staggering account Of the Sermon on the Mount Which I don't pretend to understand at all It's coming from the silence On the dark of the bay From the brave, the bold, the battered heart of Chevrolet The mock seals come Welcome to As We Speak. My name is uh, Lindsay Friesen. This is a brand new podcast. Um, The first uh, series that we're doing is uh, sustainability and mental health. And uh, the goal is to interview knowledge experts in our community uh, with a specialty in these areas directly or uh, areas of uh, impact on sustainability and mental health. And... um, Gord uh, is a professor at the University of British Columbia. He's a civil engineer. Uh, I met Gord uh, four weeks ago, so uh, that's when this conversation about uh, how do we bring issues around, uh, it started with sustainability. How do we bring these issues, uh, uh, these conversations uh, to the community in a way that everyone can understand and uh, unpack, uh, begin to interpret um, uh, the changes that we're all experiencing uh, in community. Uh, Gord, welcome. Thank you. And um, I'm, I'm pleased to have you here. Uh, what matters to me is how we talk about things that matter. Yeah. As we speak, what are we saying about ourselves? What's happening in our community and in our relationships? Who in our community feels that they don't have a voice? And so from that perspective, I would love to hear you talk about what matters to you in in that context. Well, I'm I'm actually really glad that you linked the two. Part of being in a community is you know people and you know each other. And a sense of community can only grow from being in a relationship with your neighbors. And to me, the reason why I say sense of community is so important and it has to grow is because it's a foundational, it's a cornerstone of uh, what we'll call sustainable community. And I defined before a community that can sustain a quality of life for future generations as well. That's how I define sustainable community. 80% of my graduate students are international and they're often told, and, and they all want to come to UBC because it's like the land of promise and Vancouver and our neck of the woods is often rated as one of the most livable cities in the world, which to me speaks of quality of life and it's it's what people aspire to and sustainability uh, yet I don't think we've arrived yet a lot of folks looking at us from the outside in think we have and yet they're still warned by their parents these 80% of these students that come to do graduate studies with me oh watch you don't get the depression disease it's a huge issue and they are aware of it we know here too because of the weather the winters here do you mean or it's not specific to colonians it's north america in general so what's going on we we have a huge so people coming from outside cultures 
Yes, and outside they, North America. And their perception is you come to North America and you might catch this disease like a... Like if we would talk about, oh, you go to the jungle, you might catch dengue fever or something. Yes, that's exactly. the, That's the analog. And that is really, hmm. uh, I'm not going to say scary, but it's concerning to me. It's disconcerting. Why do they feel that way? And then it started making me think about, well, hold on, I'm Mr. Treehugger, Mr. Sustainable Community Designer and Planner. That's an aspect that we have to address. Because if people are truly at peace and they feel they have a hope in a future and in a community, a sense of community, then why is there still mental illness? What's, what's going on with that? So for me, it's, it just broadens my perspective on making sure no one gets left behind. And people that are not socialized, that don't feel part of a community, um, that have an illness, it could be biochemical. I like to think that's the minimal side of it, but I could be wrong because I don't know it all. Um, we need to address this as an issue in a community that does aspire to call itself more sustainable. And so I, I, I think there is a lot of linkage between mental health and sustainability. Well, I appreciate the fact that um, you're on board with that. There's so many ways we could take the, this discussion, but let me just say right off the bat, sustainable communities, it's a very, very complex. It's, it's, you need to look at it as a system. It's not you, you focus on a problem that's a tailpipe. You have to look at the entire bus. You have to look at the entire train. And so when you talk about a, aspiring to a quality of life in a community, I'm not just talking infrastructure. I'm talking about its people. I'm talking about its systems, its programs, its processes. It's really, really important that we get that. However, let me dive into a few key components. You know, we talked before about uh, sustainability and sustainable communities having social aspects, environmental aspects, economic aspects, and there's a lot of often competing interests and priorities for maybe you know scarce resources. So we need some leadership in there. So let's let's recap on those. There's, sure. Uh, so you used the analogy of a stool, a three-legged stool, and uh, and we did. We talked about this. We we agreed the uh, each uh, each one uh, the one is environmental. Uh, one is uh, economic and the other is social in broad general terms and then y and then the stool on top that connects all three is leadership mm -hmm. okay mm -hmm. and, and the, the, the thing I don't like to do is just say environment is one leg it's people are another leg and business or economy is another leg they're very much interrelated in fact it's kind of like this stool right here that you can't see I'm gonna just lift it up I mean it's continuous it doesn't have legs it's a continuous stool because that's the way it should be. The environment encompasses everything. And inside of that are people and the economy. If we don't have air, we don't have water, we die. So it's really important that it's, it's, it's a system. It's interconnected. So, But you need to talk about aspects or components of that system. So, for example, we always say, well, where do we live? We start at a human scale. We talk about a bedroom and a kitchen and food and food security and farms and then friends. We talk about the structure. What's the climate? We have a context we live within, right? A biodiverse climate. We need those bugs to grow the soil, to grow the plants, to grow the food. And then, oh, we're going to take some to market because we've got more than we need. And so we have an economy and we have relationships. We have a community. Oh, I disagree with my neighbor on where you're planting or what you're doing. So the land use defines a community and it comes from that culture and that context on how they lay it out. But really, at the, at the earliest times, it comes from a human scale of development. And as more people like what they see, 
they come into the community now we have growth now we have to worry about smarter growth so I, I aspire to something called smarter growth where you take a systems approach to it and you recognize you're not just talking about one or the other component you need to look at a system approach and above all we know in this valley we have a very low density but we have a large number of small rural communities running up and down the valley throughout the valley we have uh, soyas right at the US border and then everything in between Okanagan Falls large and small thousands Penticton's about 50,000 we have Naramata, we have West Bank, we have West Kelowna, we have Kelowna 130,000 up through Oyama, Lake Country, and then we got Vernon all the way up Falcon. So what, what, what's, what are the total numbers Cameron, we're looking at? We're probably in the range in our Okanagan Valley approaching I want to say a quarter of a million. Okay. Um, and the thing is that the density is very low. Well, those people are aging, they're getting older, people are coming in and out, but there's a few trends that are on a collision course here. First of all, more and more young people, okay. who, having heard the story about emissions and climate change and pollution. So you want to go into some of the demographics? Well, this is going to help me get to the train. So the trains left the station. We're going to go. We're, okay, so we're working our way to 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 where where you're at right now, which is uh, developing a, a train technology that right. could service this this corridor. But before I get there, I have to set the context. Right. I just want to just so people understand where we're going. So so the problem is that um, traditionally in North American culture, not so much European, they have since the 1900s, early 1900s started driving everywhere and as of the 50s we transitioned into a very auto-dependent suburbia after world war ii anyways type of development structure so you have maybe a, a city core and now you've got low density suburbs and we plan not according to humans but according to the car mm -hmm. and so Los when you Angeles. plan for Cars and traffic, mm -hmm. you get cars and traffic. Absolutely, you get big multi-lane freeways. Well, in the 70s, with the oil crisis, because a lot of this is all about carbon-based fuels now, non-renewables and pollution, oil crisis hit, and several countries around the world, including cities in North America, Vancouver was one, decided we don't want freeways anymore. We don't want them through our downtown. So they started rethinking how they planned communities, and they went more with trolley buses. The Netherlands went more with trains and trolley buses and bicycles. Various countries have gone that route. Others, and most in North America, went still with interstate highways and freeways. And Kelowna and the Okanagan Valley is one of those. So in the 50s, we had a lot of highway construction. Our Ministry of Transportation and Highways built highways. And there's nothing wrong with that at the base point when you think about it, it's about connecting people and communities and commerce except that growth has happened for the last 60 years. And so how do we handle the next generation of growth? We've, with our highways that we built, done well. We are a booming economy, we're very healthy, and, and people aspire to move to Vancouver and British Columbia and Kelowna. But we can't afford to keep building highways. We're at that point now where we are at capacity of a lot of highways, and in the summer, Kelowna and the Okanagan has a real problem with traffic congestion. Not only that, we have a real problem with people literally killing themselves, trying, driving themselves to death. Uh, air quality is becoming an issue. But we have a beautiful natural setting here, the lake, the forest, the soil, that's at risk when you have high uh, noise 
and emissions of greenhouse gases, pollution particulates. So, so now we have the need to handle remaining connected, but it's compounded because we have people around the world, millennials, who have realized driving's a mistake now. And why do I have to drive the road? I don't want to drive. So fewer and fewer millennials are getting driver's licenses. At the other end of the age spectrum, we have seniors. More and more of us are becoming seniors. We have this demographic shift who are no longer driving, can't drive if they wanted to. So we have youth that don't want to drive. We have seniors that can't drive, but both need to stay connected to services, to school, to health care, to community, to friends, to relatives. And how? So you're, you're building a case for a mass transit then? I am building case for a valley-wide rail system. We have all these small, low-density rural communities like pearls on a string that need to be connected by a light rail system going from the U.S. border all the way through Vernon and up to Kamloops. So you're talking light rail. So if you've been to Europe and you've ridden their train systems, they're what would you say? You've, you've been over there, you've studied their systems. That's exactly what I want to see here. Okay, now explain, explain to me, if you could, the difference between, uh, because I have associated light rail with uh, cities like Calgary where I've lived, um, but here we're talking about light rail going between urban centers, and that's Absolutely. okay? So that's regional rail. It's called light because it's carrying people, not tons of coal. It's real simple. It's the, it's the same rail bed, the same rail track, the same design on okay. grade. Okay. It, so, Cal now, yeah, go ahead. And now light rail in Calgary, you've got these overhead lines, I believe. Now, but this in Europe you do too, yes. In, in Europe you do too, okay. And now how would that work? Because if you get on a train and you want to start at the American border, if I understand correctly, uh, do you see that that system ha working here? Nope, it won't. We need a new system. Okay, and as an engineer, you've thought about this. You've and thought we're about actually a solution. researching what we call the gateway technology for all of North America's regional passenger railways to electrify them. So and you call it a? Is it a gateway technology, or is that the the, the name of the brand you're developing, or the technology you're developing? It, it is a gateway technology, and the brand is called Hydrail. H-Y-D rail, hydrail. Hydrail, okay. It's short for, long word about to happen, long phrase, hydrogen fuel cell slash battery mm -hmm. hybrid rail power system. Okay. So hydrogen fuel cell, that's made in BC technology, made in BC hydrogen, mm -hmm. but it doesn't have to be. Anywhere you can produce hydrogen, it just happens to be the Canadian markets, uh, both Ballard here in BC, and hydrogenics in Ontario have the lion's share of the fuel cell market around the world. Okay. So I'm saying made in Canada fuel cell, but because we're in BC and we're talking about the Okanagan Valley, I'm talking about made in BC hydrogen from renewables. Okay. Plus fuel cells from Ballard, mm -hmm. combined with batteries, and we're researching also batteries from from BC. But meanwhile, we import if we have to, or we get them where we have to, and that can fit in place of a diesel engine on any train. Okay, so you've made the case for mass transit, you've made the case for a rail uh, solution, a complete integrated system. Um, 
And I'd, I'd like to give you the chance to go more into the technology side, but before we do, uh, you mentioned earlier land use, that land use is a big part of this. Um, so I'd like to hear more about that. Mm -hmm. Now, tying into land use, uh, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, how do we, how do we, so how do we bring this into, back to the idea around conversations? Because what you're talking about, the idea of, if I was to go and start telling everybody that I wanted to build a train from the American border up to Vernon, just for starters, uh, and then if I, I took a pick and shovel and I went and I drove down to a Soyuz and I got to work tomorrow, uh, you know, it wouldn't take long and somebody, you know, people would come up to me and they'd say, what are you doing? They want well, I'm building a, a rail line and, uh, whoa, well, where do you plan to go? All the way to Vernon. Um, somebody would have something to say about that. So there's a lot of stakeholders involved is what I'm trying to get at. Absolutely. So how, how, does, how does that work? How do, you, how do you begin a conversation with, with all of these communities to do such an epic uh, mega project? What, what, what's the budget for it and how do you start that conversation? Well, it's a million dollar budget. Uh, how much? Billion dollar. Did billion. I say did I say million? I, meant I billion. think you said million. Yep. It's a two million dollar per mile budget, roughly, for the tracks, which works out over just under two hundred kilometers from the border to Vernon. Two hundred kilometers to be, you know, at, and two million per kilometer. Yep. To to about half a billion. Okay. And I'm saying that's just for the track. That's just for the track and the running gear because the the cars are about six six million each. But honestly, I want to say five million per mile to be conservative because we've actually done a lot of research on this over the last 10 years. And at one time we were thinking it would be at greater cost, but there happens to be one of Western Canada's largest railway contractors headquartered in Kelowna, Caribou Rail. He, uh, they, they actually certified that no, we, we could actually lay track for under two million per mile. It's, 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 it's a BHAG, it's a big, hairy, audacious goal. Mm -hmm. And you said that yourself, you just called it something else. I, I can't remember the phrase you used, but you're a mega, right. mega project. It's a mega project, like the big dig in Boston, right? Billion right. dollars. Yeah. So let's just say we think it's under half a billion. I'm going to just use a billion for round numbers, okay? Because everybody that listens to me says, Gord, you can't afford this, it's not possible. And I'm going, okay, well, let's talk a little bit more about this. And not everybody get scared off. So here's what's going on. We're not talking about a business case. We're talking about connecting people. And we're talking and we're having a conversation with all the communities and the seniors and the youth and the tourists and the businesses. And the businesses are the ones getting the most excited about this, as well as the individual residents. So people are really excited about this. The only people that worry about business case are the people that are like, well, hold on, uh, maybe I've got something vested in this and I don't really want to change. But what I'm asking is people to say, well, can we afford to build more highway? How, how can we stay connected as a valley as we grow and as we grow older? With the way technology is going, do we really need to be that concerned with how we move people? Uh, moving information first. Mm -hmm. We've got that done. We've got the infrastructure, mm -hmm. the, the fiber optics and so on. So moving information is not the problem. Can you unpack a little bit more on that in terms of the economic model 
and the justification for it. Yeah, well, as I was saying, the, uh, the business case is not, and, and I, I, I have to push back a little bit. There doesn't have to be an economic case on this. Isn't that a scary thought? I always thought business case, and I've, got a, I've done the economic feasibility analysis, and it works in 2039. The population is there, the cost benefit, the revenue, all of that. So but 20 years from now? 20, absolutely. But okay. I've been getting told by businesses, that's not the important detail here, Gordon. People need to move from one end of the valley from, and different parts of the valley. So it's not even about information transfer. So people will always want to move. They will always want to connect. So we're going to have people that want to go. And in Europe, the government had just said, we're providing rail because we can't afford to build roads. That's the business case. It's called opportunity benefit. How much does a mile of highway cost to build? Just take a wild guess. We had this conversation before, I know, and you were like, uncovered. Oh, you're forcing me to give a number. Come on. Uh, one, one mile? Yep. So that, that's an imperial, not metric. Okay, a kilometer. Use whatever unit. Okay, number. well, it's, um, I don't know, 50 million. Okay, if you're going through rock, mountainous terrain, you're not far off. It's probably closer to 20 to 30 million per kilometer to punch a highway lane. One lane, one kilometer through mountains because you're, you're not blasting. It's it's very expensive, right? So you double it up, you're at 40 million plus. So I basically I had the right answer. Is that what you're telling me, Gord? Oh, absolutely. All right, okay. Take it to the bank, big guy. <laughs> now, let me ask you, because I've already told you the answer, what did I say it cost per kilometer for rail? Two million, okay? And double it up. Four million. So it's one-tenth the cost. This is the point. So how are we going to handle growth? By the way, highways, you want to hear the justification? Highways is already planning to double-stack Highway 97 through Kelowna. Uh, the provincial... Uh, provincial government has already They want planned. to see a double... It's called the Central Okanagan Transportation Plan, and they are looking at ways to double the capacity of Highway 97. That's our justification. So that's one option. That's one option. What would it cost just in Kelowna alone to widen or double the capacity of Highway 97? A billion dollars. Half a billion dollars. It's, it's in the range of what it would take to put the rail all the way from the border to Kamloops. That's the justification. Opportunity benefit. Okay. So I've mentioned this idea to people. You know what people t say first to me? They say, oh, what about um, going along, uh, you know, that, that piece of track? If you go Highway 33 towards Big White, there's another stretch. Kennel Valley. Yeah. So, Valley. It, so basically tying into Penticton on the Naramata side of the lake. Um, is, that in there, is that ever a, a part of feasibility? Would, would that? Good transportation planning links communities. Okay. It doesn't go through the middle of nowhere. This has to be servicing and connecting people to where they go from and where they go to. So it's 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 always an option. It's a different issue to get all together. But it gets it takes full circle back to an earlier comment you made about oh let's talk a bit about the land use aspect. Doesn't this lead to a station of redevelopment question mm -hmm. nodes? And so you just to bring it back to that, you want to connect communities. You want to connect people to be able to connect and from and between those communities and so therefore you need stations in communities not Kettle Valley. So Kettle Valley is a great it was it's actually a tourism corridor it's rideable it could be redeveloped but it, unfortunately it doesn't have any communities other than Penticton 
and it doesn't actually connect with Kelowna. Okay, so if we do a double stack down Highway 97. With a highway? Well, this is what you said is being proposed. Or cut and cover. Or cut and cover. Okay, which so is which needs to go below. Or stack it. Bury it or stack it. How long have these conversations been going on? Like, are they so far down the track? Because this is the first time I'm really hearing about this. Uh, have they looked at trains? What's the what's that cost benefit analysis? No, they have not looked at transit. They have not looked at trains, and this is why. A year ago, year and a half ago, when the just before the provincial election, when the NDP minority government was elected, so this was May 2000. I don't know what that year was. Let's just call it 2016, and uh, the open house with the MLAs had a double stack, and the comment from everybody was. This is our community, and you're going to divide it even more. So one of the things they're now looking at is is not stacking it. The MLA admitted that was probably a throwaway. They're looking at cut and cover. So that is being talked about. The point I'm raising is Highways is, sees the need. They're talking about it now because they see it happening or being needed sometime in the next 20 to 30 years. So we know that for tourism, which is a cornerstone of our economy, and being connected, that we need to do something, we need to start talking now. Their terms of reference, though, when they were talking, ignored transit and didn't include rail. I'm saying, and when I speak to my European colleagues and others in our community, they're going like, obviously rail. We don't want to continue noisy, polluting, dangerous driving. But they have a lot higher density than we do in Europe, do, do they not? It doesn't matter. It's not. This is where the land use station node comment comes in. It doesn't matter because if they're talking about a highway, is there a business case? Do we have the density to justify the highway? It makes no difference. The justification is they are planning to increase cap transport cap capacity in our community. Okay. And, and so my comment is, let's take advantage of the opportunity benefit. Okay. They know it's needed, great. We have a better, cheaper, 10 times cheaper, 200 times more capacity solution called passenger rail. And a lot of that traffic that they're talking about is through traffic, tourists coming to from the airport, from the US, seniors, youth that don't wanna drive. So why don't we give people what they actually want that's cleaner, greener, zero emission and safer and cheaper. Okay. Okay, so let's assume you've you've got everybody on board, and the train's leaving the station. There's so many <laughs> there's so many tie-ins here. It's just it's low hanging fruit. This is too easy. Everyone's on the, on the train. Uh, everyone's found their seat. Um, but before we leave the station, we've got to make sure that um, there's track. We've that we've got uh, track ahead of us. You did talk about the station. We haven't talked about the station either. Well, we'll let's, come back get to the station. let's get to that. Let's get to that. On the next let's, station. Yeah, let's let's assume all that's going to happen and it's going to unfold in the right way. But that I st I still think let's talk about this land use thing. How do you how do you get these communities? It sounds to me. T tell me a little bit about about your experience in that aspect. Well, bringing your expertise to a place where everybody sure uh, no problem. Here's a couple of books. Now, gets, you, you gets to have a say. This is game changer. This is absolutely a game changer. So there's a book written by. Yeah, so game changer, I just have to. Sure, sure, sure. As you mentioned it. So game changer is a book that, that um, I 
I've read recently. It's written by David McAdams. And uh, so this, the subtitle is Game Theory and the Art of Transforming Strategic Situations. And I think we're in a game changer situation, and I know game theory. Yeah, okay, so, so they use the prisoner's dilemma. When you work together, everybody, social welfare increases. Everybody wins when you work together. But one person can screw it for everybody else and get further ahead, and people lose more, and it's a net loss. So do you want to work together? Is that community? Well, so um, let me just say, I got about three-quarters of the way through this book. And you threw it out the window. No. <laughs> but he gave a test case. So the, the prisoner's dilemma is, you know, it's a square divided into quadrants, and you've got different options to choose from. And they go through all the permutations and all the different scenarios. They've done the studies, the sociology, and so on. Um, so they have a, a really good understanding of, of the mechanics of it, how it works. Um, but you know what really landed me, landed for me on that book is a tactic, uh, the tit-for-tat tactic, essentially, which is to say, uh, let's assume you and I don't know each other, but we need to cooperate mm -hmm. for some goal that we both uh, agree on. Um, the most effective uh, method that's mm -hmm. sort of a, a quick and dirty op operating principle is uh, to basically allow uh, each individual to proceed in their own way mm -hmm. to on, on according to agreed upon terms. Uh, if there's a violation by one party against the other, uh, that the first party takes the responsibility to uh, hold that other party accountable mm -hmm. and say, no, 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 you can't, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. And then to forget about it and then carry on. And if at a certain, another point um, down the line that you have the same situation recur, that then you punish that other person. You, you, you make sure that they understand more than just on a communication level that they have... Uh, you know, um, triggered some kind of a, a violation of something of, of the agreement. And if they course correct, uh, then go back to scenario one where there's, there's a clean slate and you don't carry any, uh, any, any of that forward with you so that you can continue to, to make forward progress. If they, if they ignore that, they, they're breaking the partnership. So in, in two or three steps, uh, you can get to uh, you use this very quick and dirty operating principle to keep keep things moving moving ahead. Uh, so uh, it helps. The value of this book to me was um, disengaging the the sort of emotional uh, looping that we can get into, where we think about our feelings uh, and we feel out our thoughts, which is not purely rational, but we know from behavioral science, and I've talked to you about this before, about how, how we actually, how our brains work, how we work sociologically, and the power of implicit bias. Um, so I'm going to throw this back to you again. Uh, t let's, let's talk about that community interaction. How, how do we get a game-changing idea out there and get, get a community not just engaged, um, but participating. Is it possible? Are, are public forums uh, chances for people to engage? Once 
I think oftentimes the public perception is once you've got a public forum, um, the the money is already uh, moving ahead. Uh, the principles are there. It's just a matter of how do we get everybody on board here. And and there isn't a real sense of like I have a, an actual say here. And um, now. I don't want to make any projections here, but I'll just let you let you take it from there. Sounds like you're expressing some implicit bias. Yeah, I am expressing an implicit bias. Yeah, yeah. You know, I um, I hear that, and and so, how do we help the train leave the station if there's a need to deal with growth? We need to add transportation com capacity to our valley transportation system so people can move physically, move themselves up and down the valley. And highway sees it, we all agree it's needed. Everybody I talk to says, yeah, it's a good idea. What a great idea, an electric train, zero emission, it's needed. So nobody's debating, other than sometimes they're debating a form of transportation. Highways happen to be thinking highways, they don't think anybody's gonna take a bus. And I agree with them. What I've seen most in the world, in my travels, is people will get on a train before they will get on a bus. It's just something about trains, you can take, you can just, it's, it happens. 30% of the cars will be off the road the day that train launches. So uh, there's no doubt in my mind, based on my experience, my evidence, the research that I've observed others do, and it's happened time and time again, Lindsay, that people will get on a train. Can you give me one example of that? Vancouver SkyTrain, going from downtown to Richmond to the airport. And we were forecasting ridership that was going to be heavily Richmond to downtown Vancouver. The ridership from downtown Vancouver to Richmond actually surpassed it. So they were not just interested in moving into the city, there was also movement uh, in the opposite direction. And, and so we were trying to use the classic four-step transportation planning model. Where do people live? Where do they work? What mode are they going to pick? When are they going to travel? How many of them cumulatively are going to travel and just design the system to that meet that capacity. We were blindsided. And this was even assuming some of that 30% factor, that cool, we call it cool, tractor, cool factor when it comes to trains. So the, the demand and the need, it's going to happen. So I'm going to move past that point and I'll get back to your original question of, well, how are you going to start the conversation? How does this happen? And I call it building a coalition of support. And, and the, the best I've ever seen is when you just have the small conversations, just one-on-ones, like you and I are having right now. And then you share and you see if you can keep the conversation above the line. And, and, and so people, we're all selfish, let's face it, right? But if, if you can appeal to a motivating factor in someone like, yeah, it sure would be nice to travel without having to worry about you know, driving myself. And as I get older, or I'm too young to drive, um, not even have the stress of driving, but I could still get there reasonably fast, and I'm willing to pay for that. Why not? So, so that's the kind of conversation. But he, now it goes beyond that. So I, I talked to my cousin, and he says, "Well, actually, as a businessman, I can see the obvious attraction to a businessman would be the station redevelopment opportunities." And so then I, I he says, "You need to go talk, to, start a discussion with the businesses up and down the valley." And he says, just focus on the fact of what you're thinking is needed in this valley and why. And so that's why I started this conversation with you and I about the demographics and the trends I've been observing, right? 
there is going to be demand. And then I bring in the fact that Highways is planning for capacity improvements. So we know, and it's confirmed, we've got demographic shift. We've got regulatory, or you might call it leadership shift. They mm -hmm. know something's needed to manage growth. And Kelowna is absolutely congested every summer on Highway 97. We hear nothing but complaints. People, I've got friends coming. They won't even stay in Kelowna anymore. They're going to Osoyas. They're going to Oliver. They're even going there from Alberta. So I see a need. So, so all this to say, all right, let's move past the point of it being needed. Oh, we need a business case. Let's now move past to the discussion of building the coalition of support. Because once businesses and that coalition whether it's people riding it or people wanting to help with the redevelopment of the stations, is now spinning. Now the politicians at all levels are going to say, wow, we've got grassroots support and we're going to save money. It's going to be one-tenth the cost. There's only one taxpayer and it 200 times more capacity. It makes so, It's a win-win for everybody. This is what they want. We save money. We can do other construction projects elsewhere with the same tax dollars with less. Wow. So now we start talking about book that I was going to talk about called The Last Spike. So people working together involves trust and that's one thing about game theory, that's my takeaways. To, to actually maximize success in a community, people need to have prior relationship which builds trust to go forward together. Right? Mm -hmm. You might be able to travel faster alone, but you travel farther together. That's that's uh, that's an excellent point. Um, I was at uh, an event in Kelowna la earlier this week, and uh, there was uh, I'm not going to get her name right, but uh, she was speaking about uh, the basic principles of networking and how to create uh, you know positive change. Mm -hmm. um, that's more on the entrepreneurial side, mm -hmm. um, but the principle is the same. Right. You don't know where the where the relationship is going to come from, mm -hmm. where where that seed is going to get planted, and mm -hmm. you don't know where these things are going to go. Um, and so, as a basic communication principle, uh, the idea of essentially begins with you know treating each person with the equal amount of dignity and respect, um, and recognizing their personhood. Mm -hmm. um, and seeing them as a part of your community. Yeah, I find there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear when people don't know how to handle something that it's inevitably coming at them. And in our valley, it's growth. And around the world, people are afraid. And that's why you have a populist movement going. They're, they're, they're protecting themselves because there's fear there. And I think we need to open the discussion and face our fears and say, guys, there is a way to handle growth where it's a win-win for everybody. We've got a plan, and now you've got hope that replaces fear. And now you're starting to address mental illness. You're connecting people. You've got a relationship, and you're moving forward together. And that's where the book, The Last Spike, by Pierre Burton, is what I want to recommend you read. And to everybody listening, if you haven't read The Last Spike, read The Last Spike. Pierre Burton, one of you've our got pioneer to be going back writers. To the 80s absolutely, for that one. absolutely. So he he's you know classic historian, and and fictional drama, historically accurate, but also biographer and his story. And a Canadian, right? Absolutely. Famous Canadian, Canadian journalist. Right? Absolutely. So he, he went back through all the archives and he started to pull out the John A. McDonald and the and the and the uh, the, um, the manager, the general manager of the National Railway construction. So there's there's 
there's a group of characters that got together, thrown together from disparate nationalities, and they saw a common problem, a common need, and that was how to get a rail across Canada because our confederation, Canada's existence, our nation, depended on it. But they had a problem. They faced all sorts of challenges. They, they, they couldn't get the cash they needed, so they were a cash poor but a very land rich country. And John A. had promised the Premier of BC that I would, if I get a rail to you, then you're going to join us up and we'll become the country of Canada. So on that commitment, he, he promised the railway consortium, mm -hmm. I will give you $25 million of cash and 25 million acres of Canadian land in exchange for building the Cross Canada Railway. Mm -hmm. coast to coast, mm -hmm. sea to shining sea. Mm -hmm. And so as they built, they would get land. It worked out to about every other mile. Mm -hmm. And they would have whistle stops uh, at every subdivision. About every 130 miles, you'll find across Canada on the, on the CP line, cities. You know, Brandon, Winnipeg, as you're moving, moving west, Portugal Prairie, all the way across uh, Canada and the prairies, and then getting to the Rocky Mountains is a bit tighter because they had mountains to cut through and everything. But that's essentially how our railway got built in exchange for land, not much cash. And it was a public-private partnership. The government brought land and a little bit of money, and the syndicate brought capital up front, the wherewithal and the logistics and the capacity, the know-how, the expertise mm -hmm. to actually build the railway. And I'm saying that's the same model that could be used. It's called public-private partnership, P3. Mm -hmm. We could do it in this valley. And the key, here's, here's, here's what changes a little bit. Okay, let, 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 oh, me, sure, pause, let me pause you there. Because I want to bring this back to uh, sustainability. Yeah. When some of the things that, uh, some of the challenges we have today that weren't in place back then were uh, environmental issues. Uh, also, uh, getting back to who actually owns the land, who has the right to the land. All of the above has to be dealt with. You're absolutely yeah. right. Uh, so from the Aboriginal community or the Indigenous community, yes, uh, from their aspect as well, how do you bring them into the conversation? Absolutely, as well? has to all be brought in. So, yeah. so and duty to duty to consult is also a big part of this conversation. Absolutely, as well. absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's, it's, but if we don't start the conversation, will it ever happen? Well, this is exactly it. So, so what can you what can you say about uh, those constituents, those types of stakeholders? That how are? Give me some examples because we just came through some very contentious uh, issues with Trans Mountain and pipelines in general. How do we get things built oh, in this country? I am so. so I'm just going to throw. That, no, I'm just going to throw good. it at you this because if anyone's going to answer this, you know, we've got to unpack right, these big right. issues, and we're in the middle of it. I don't know if uh, anyone really understands. Yeah, so any information I, you could offer would ab be absolutely uh, I think helpful. I'm so glad you, you've tied that. That is a critical issue. Um, we know, for the most part in BC, uh, we've never had treaties with our First Nations Aboriginal peoples. They're not a conquer people. And Gil Ruth in 1992 was the court decision, Supreme Court, that confirmed that. And so BC has a duty cons to consult. The federal government has a duty to consult. Now this is a BC rail, okay, this valley, so we're talking to BC government. Absolutely, we have to consult. We have to acknowledge. Even this very interview is taking place on the territorial lands of the Silix Nation, the Okanagan Nation Alliance. And, and this is land 
that is, it's UBC's just last, in the last little while, uh, appreciated that to the point where we have the Canadian flag, we have the BC flag, the UBC flag, and now we have the Silex flag. We have four flags flying on our campus because of that, and we now have a partnership with our native peoples. And that's critical that they be part of the conversation, and as you already said, treated with respect and dignity. Absolutely, 100%. Well, so now let's bring in the, the pipeline or the rail. So one of the things that... The process is... Uh, it's everything. Yeah. And people are the process. This is what I teach my students in every design course is you have a duty to consult stakeholders, all of the stakeholders. And so you don't just have a client that says do this. You also have experts called residents through which community you're designing that transportation or that land use or that neighborhood or whatever the engineering project is. So one of the things that has to happen is consultation and I've already had some discussions with First Nations, West Bank First Nation, and very preliminary, and, and I, I don't want to tell stories and their story, I want to respect that, but one of the comments that's been made is trains can move people. Pipelines can only move oil. Which is more beneficial in terms of local jobs and local people? A pipeline or a train? And so we know there's benefits to a railway and it travels in both directions, connecting a community. There's also other benefits. A train can carry goods, light freight, like wine and fruit, to the U.S. border. Those are the kinds so of things that excite a community, that connect yeah. a community. So, so you're talking about how do we get as many people with a, with a vested interest in this thing? Absolutely. Right? It's, it's an electric regional train, Yeah. but there are opportunities where maybe like Greyhound mm -hmm. has a trailer behind its bus, there are opportunities to carry some goods to other markets. Okay. And those discussions are at a very, very preliminary conceptual nature okay. that have got a very great amount of excitement behind them already. And I've basically had no formal conversations, but we're talking about developing what's called social license. Right? I, I think you can consult partnerships on the actual contract, but you really need to consult the people through whose communities, and hopefully in whose communities this would benefit as well, okay? So for me, it's, it's critical, the Okanagan Nation Alliance, West Bank First Nation, between the cities we're talking about, also be consulted, as well as in the cities, because West Bank is its mm -hmm. own city, mm -hmm. West Kona, etc. So it's a really important thing you raise, is that we can talk technical, but Lindsay, we need to talk process and to the people, to the local experts themselves, the residents along this line. Absolutely. And, yeah, and, and, and even that conversation as part of that process, uh, it takes time, yes. it takes effort, takes uh, takes money uh, to bring to just facilitate those conversations. Um, and then there's the environmental aspect as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. And that's the beauty is a, an electric rail is zero emission, and rail can be laid on the road grade. We're not talking massive excavations and forest deforestation or anything like that. Electric rail, the technology we're talking about, doesn't require overhead lines. It doesn't require a third rail. It doesn't require huge electrical transformers. This thing's powered by hydrogen. So you need a fueling station at the rail yard. You fuel the train once every 
few days and it runs. It runs like a deer for a few days at a time before it comes back into the yard to get refueled. So it's a standalone train. This is the beauty of the thing. And really the tracks can go anywhere because electric technology we're talking about mm -hmm. can go any grade the current highway runs on. Okay. We have absolute flexibility in the route. That, to me, that's one of those issues that it should be more about does your community want a station than about where the route of the track will be. Mm -hmm. if, if a community is willing to... Are you talking, would you have multiple stations in the city of Kelowna or a why not? single one? Or? Well, it's, it, we are big enough for, we, we have basically, what is it, 20, 20 kilometers road, 20 to 40 kilometers from the bridge to the airport, okay? So you would want stations every, every you know, few kilometers, 10 kilometers, and probably four, one at the bridge, one, uh, you know, if, if Al Stober uh, wants to work near Capri Landmark, that's city developer. We would have one probably near Highway 33 connecting to the Rutland communities, and then one at the UBC Airport precinct, and maybe more as growth happens over the next 20, 30 years, right? It's just, it's a starter conversation, mm -hmm. and once the route is there, others can happen, just like bus stops can be added. So, so really, it depends on the community, and it comes back to my comment about the P3, about the, the partnership, the public-private partner. The, what's in it for the private partner, they bring cash up front to, to do the heavy lifting, they actually get the construction done. What's in it for them is they have, they come to the table, and this is a model that was used for all the SkyTrain stations in the Lunar Mainland, is they will say, okay, fantastic, there's land, it's zoned for redevelopment, mm -hmm. and the beauty of it is you've got office, you've got service commercial, and you've got housing. Now we're into providing more housing, and we've got density around stations. And it's done in a way where the community is consulted. So Highway 33, what's there? Not a lot of housing. Oh, by the way, uh, don't want to say too much, but isn't there a big box store that wants to move? And that could be a redevelopment site. Who knows what's going on there? There's lots of big boxes or sites in the Highway 3397. So yeah, so find, finding locations for these pieces, that's all achievable. That's not just achievable, it's land that's sitting either parking lot or vacant and underutilized according yeah. to current zoning, right. let alone up zoning potential. Right. And so the developer sees that as a fantastic, what's called in land economics, increased rent opportunity to recoup some of their initial investments for mm -hmm. building the train. And, yeah. and so that's how come they are excited and they'll come to the table. And we're already working mm -hmm. and we've had folks approach me to say, yeah, let's, let's, let's have a public meeting on this thing. So we're okay. So, and that all makes sense. And, and, uh, and, but talking about housing, uh, when you talk about Kelowna and housing, affordability is a big discussion point in this. Homelessness is a big Homelessness discussion point. Homelessness as well. Yes. Yeah. yes. So it, can you tell me who's, who's, who's talking about these issues in terms of uh, I'm just going to play out a scenario. So, um, Calgary and other cities, they, they use transit-oriented developments. Mm -hmm. So you build density around transit nodes. Mm -hmm. um, you've got all kinds of uh, implications, including social. Um, but those become magnets for investment, for real estate development investing. I think what's not clear 
to me personally, um, but also I think in, gen, in in the public as well, is how what what are the mechanisms? And this might be something where I I think because we're doing a series on this, we're not. I'm not. I don't mean to ask you uh, to answer all of these questions. So I think uh, you know it'd be valuable for uh, for me to talk to uh, somebody. Uh, like an economist. But I can talk about this. I've, I, okay. I, I know you're going with so this. So you know where I'm going with yeah. this. So how do, we, how do we make sure that the value that's being generated, first of all, how is, that, how is that process decided in terms of how much value do we put back into uh, the citizens who, you know, frankly, should be at the front of the bus on this. So, so in community planning and development approval jargon, what you're really asking is, what's the social value of your proposal? And the economic value. No, the economic value is, is actually going to drive itself. The, the business, well, private development wouldn't be anywhere near mm-hmm. doing this if there wasn't money in it for them. For them, but however, so, but social affordability, value, right? So that affordability. That's, that's, I, I actually encompass affordability, economic value, all within social value. What's the value to our community? The of, net benefit. Of letting you come in mm-hmm. and redevelop around a station. Now, besides the fact that a rail will be the backbone around which we can revitalize all of our transit network. Mm-hmm. So we improve transit. So transport equity is dealt with. We actually increase the service quality level and penetration into neighborhoods. So now we've got people that hadn't been able to get access, now has access. Mm-hmm. And they get to access to the station and then all the way up and down the valley. So that's one social value. The second social value is, and this is a model that uh, folks, colleagues of mine at UBC like Patrick Condon uh, have touted and it's actually happening in the Netherlands where I take my students every summer to teach on planning and design of sustainable communities and Vienna where we have what's called affordable housing components of every great redevelopment if if you're gonna have a diverse community you have to always have a diverse housing stock there's a diversity of services housing stock and that includes market and non-market so in in uh, some cases in the Netherlands half of all their city housing is non-market. And they'll have BC housings or private corporations. Uh, we have um, High Street. We have uh, Shane, I don't want to name a name because I can't remember his name, Warman, Shane Warman, where they, they develop seniors with students, so market and non-market rental housing. It's all they do. There's a lot of innovative models on Absolutely. housing out there. So the economics clearly the, work, though. And how much of that is actually penetrating into the into our markets? It is that what is I that just quoted. That's happening. What that's I just quoted. Those two companies, Shane yeah. Warman, Warman Homes, and High Street. Yeah. Those are just two. BC Housing's also here. I'm pushing for co-housing. I'm looking for a new model, never been done before in Kelowna, that I've been familiar with all over North America. Yeah, because because BC Housing. Um, it makes some people nervous. Absolutely, and so, I, I'm not saying I would push all BC housing. Yeah, because but talk about co-housing. What's uh, can what, explain right. that? Let me let me just say one thing. Stigma is something that has to be overcome with with housing that's non-market. There's a lot of folks that they, they have the stigma. Oh, that's dirty, smelly, poverty-stricken people, mental health issues. We need to get past that as a community. We need to recognize. Welcome to the human race and you're my neighbor. And if we can appreciate each other, and you already said dignity and respect, 
then I have a problem with that community. We need to have a true sense of community that accepts people where they're at, and even sometimes if we're awkward and uncomfortable around each other, that's okay, because not everybody has the same gift of compassion or grace, but just accepting you're part of my community. Nobody gets left behind. So that's the first thing. The second thing is coming to co-housing, you want to hear about that, whether it's part of a station redevelopment or part of a smarter growth, or you talked about transit-oriented community. Smarter growth, in my view, is a beautiful transit-oriented community with lots more park and people-scale transport options. Okay. Now, is this part of co-housing? Co-housing is in principle? could be part of any neighborhood. Okay. That's the beauty of this. So when you say co-housing, you're talking about market, non-market? Yes. Is that the co? And can't, no, no. no. The, the co is... We are community housing. So first comes community, then comes housing. And, and the way it works normally is... Is that, the, is that the pecking order? Absolutely. And where does the market fit in that? Is that... Is that well, let me, I, it's, it's coming. Getting it's coming. It. Okay. So, you have, so let's, let's take you and I. We were having a conversation a little bit earlier on talking about housing and access to housing. Well, one of the things we know is not everybody can afford to own. So maybe there's some rental as part of this. Uh, number two, everybody's at a different stage in life. Some of us are married, some of us are single. Some have kids, some don't. Some of us are widowed, some of us are young. So one of the things is you have to have a diversity of housing stock. With co-housing, you get a clump of people that want to socialize. It's called intentional community. And you, you find enough similarities in values, shared values, and wanting to live in the same general vicinity, let's say, that we say, all right, we're going to have 30 family units, whatever you define a family unit as, we're going to live together. They go forward through a process of coming together, deciding on things, most importantly, dispute resolution. Hey, we're human. We're going to have arguments. How are we going to resolve this? Is it going to be consensus? I think most of the time it is. And every co-housing development I've ever been in has one, and they've always been able to resolve with consent. And this is something you can scale. So for instance, you could have it in a neighborhood or you could have it in a single building. Like it a, could be vertical, Have you ever horizontal. Sat, have you ever sat on a strata council? Have you ever been on a condominium I board? I am on a strata council. I have been on Not a, great a place. founding anyone member. Who's, anyone who's been on a condominium, uh, like a strata council. There's a big difference. Stop, stop, <laughs> You know where stop, I'm going. Stop. So here's the deal. Not a great experience. Co-housing, you create community first. Then you develop together. So you become your own project managers. You just say 15% off the top. So now we're getting to affordability. Okay, oh, say that again. What was the first thing? You create community. Create community. Then you get work together on lo location. You decide on location and form of development. Okay. And then you build it together because you've got no doubt engineers and architects Mm -hmm. And everything in between. Now you have to be careful there. I'm not registered. Can't call me an architect. Okay, then. But I bet you've got architectural skills. I, I, I'm, I'm starting to be more attracted to the, to the phrase creative director. Beautiful. You How's have creative that? directors. Feel like yeah. I can wear that have, a little more comfortably. Ingenieur. Ingenieur. And, and, yeah, and, yeah. and you have yeah. bankers. So in Kelowna Intentional Community, that's exactly what we've got. Actually, we've got um, creative directors, mm -hmm. we've got engineers, we've got bankers, we've got nurses. So we have the full spectrum of professionals and gifts in our intentional community. And what we're going to hopefully have in the next few months is a group of 50 people, which will probably whittle down over time uh, through attrition to 30, 
And then we say, okay, let's put some skin in the game. Let's buy a site. Let's get a building permit. That's great. Let's build. And because we're building it ourselves, we've just saved 15% off the top, Lindsay. That's now getting more affordable. By the way, because we've got it, hold on, don't. Uh, 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 15%. What's the 15%? The cost of project manager. We're doing it ourselves. Project managers. Uh, right now, I'm building a carriage house in my backyard. They're charging me 10%. That's a little carriage house. So we're saving money. We're actually focused on. A piece of property so we're so as an organization you're yeah. basically saying look let's not project manage one piece at a time are you suggesting that the economy of scale by doing it at a larger scale that's where the savings come in I don't quite understand that the, the actual physical structure is 30 units on the same property and, and I'll, I'll keep going because you've got 30 units on a piece of property that is smaller than as if it was 30 single-family homes on quarter-acre lots, it's a lot less property. You just have another saving. You've saved probably another 10% because you're now on a smaller piece of property okay. with more units. So you've got increased density. Yeah. You've got project management. You're now already 25% cheaper. Now you start looking at, all right, we do want to have some community event and community functions because we're going to share meals each night, so we need a bit of a community center. Okay. So I don't want to get caught up in the numbers, but so ten, but though ten percent though comes by uh, savings on the density part of it, more or less. So I think if you used round numbers, and there's a great yeah. book if people want to read it. Yeah. It's called How to Do Co-housing. Okay. And and it is so some of the principles are laid out. Absolutely. In that. Okay. And cohousing.org. Okay. Cohousing.org is the American website, and it's the best I've seen. It has videos background information, a slideshow, okay. and, and just lots more information. It actually has every location in North America, plus around the world. Okay, so maybe we can put some of these as a reference on, yes. on the website yes. or yes. wherever this is. I definitely posted. recommend it. But the beauty of it is, is that stationary development for the train, where you're going to focus density, would be a natural for co-housing of yuppies or families that want to be near a train station. It's all walkable. It's immediate access. But maybe there's some that want to be a bit further away. Well, then, because they're younger families, it gets a little bit more horizontal because you want more ground-based, right? Or, hey, better yet, let's take an existing neighborhood out of the north end in Kelowna and retrofit it. Well, just remove the fences. This is what they did in Davis, California. Co-housing is not constrained to one cookie-cutter physical design. Lindsay. It's, it's actually constrained to whatever the 30 people want to do and their local context. You know what I'm hearing? Uh, now, I don't know as an engineer how you, how you came into this conversation that we're having, this aspect of the conversation, but it sounds to me like you're talking about uh, an awakening of uh, cultural values, maybe the value of culture, but mm -hmm. sort of a new cultural, uh, almost a, cre a creation or a, a flowering of a creative class at the community level, like this, this, in, this entire social fabric idea about building uh, more connections mm -hmm. uh, on more of a on a horizontal level, less than the traditional uh, hier hierarchical uh, way. That I, I think that most people think about how communities are typically organized. And yet, this is one of the oldest forms of housing in civilization. Asian model multi-generational. Grandparents take care of the kids while the parents are at work, right? Mm -hmm. Israeli kibbutz, Viking longhouse, First Nations longhouse. 
So very traditional. Very traditional. Also, though, if you are a North American, um, let's say I'm going to say anywhere 35 years or older, this idea of owning land, owning a home, mm -hmm. the, the, considering that that might not be possible for future generations, mm -hmm. uh, that's still a very real thing that's anathema to a lot of people in terms of, wait a second, how come... I don't know if you can speak to that. This also might be something uh, to throw to an economist, but this idea of social mobility is a big part of this too, I think. Absolutely. Homelessness Absolutely. also. We start getting into yes. some of these side issues. Well, the beauty of it is this group of 30... I don't mean side issue as no, in no, it's no, less no. important. No, but, no, no, But as we get deeper into the discussion, I think these things have to come up. I, I, think, I think the phrase is you can address more issues when you look at a take a step back and look at the system. Remember I said at the very start, it's a very complex system, but let's look at some components and drill down. And co-housing is one of those components that when you look at it and you drill down, you start seeing a huge myriad of social benefits and social value. Remember we also talked about social value and station redevelopment. The developer would need to look at contributions to added value to the community. And one of them would be helping out in terms of co-housing and co-housing sites. And, and the city might say, we'll expedite an approval. Maybe the city's just coming to the table with, we'll expedite an approval because we support the idea of co-housing and, and things like that. I mean, who knows? But w one of the benefits actually raised is this group of, let's call it 30 people doing co-housing, they don't have to necessarily have 30 units. Maybe they've got 35. And five of those are designated for non-market rental. So now you're dealing with persons that perhaps need supportive housing, students that need student housing, seniors that are widowed, or somebody that's just lost their income and has a loss of job. In my own family, we had single moms that we would rent our renter, rentable property to at below market, considerably below market value, because they were friends of ours. We knew them. It's, it's the millennial, if, if I do a value judgment, it seems to me the mindset of more and more millennials is that it's not about the money, it's about the relationship. My own adult children will not move to get a better job if it means leaving their friends. And I think that is amazing. I'm so excited to hear that. Mm -hmm. On the other side of the coin, mm -hmm. I want to throw in one other demographic I, trend. I, yeah, well, go ahead. I'm, I'm open to hearing that, but uh, that, that makes me a little uneasy. To hear to hear that because for every What's person, that? well, for every person who's okay with like uh, placing m like less of a monetary value on their on their motivational hierarchy yeah. of needs, whatever, however you want to phrase that, um, there will also be those who say, "Great, more for me." There might be. So, uh, and 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 that's that's I think also an important topic. Um, some people only uh, see value in terms of dollars and cents. But so, if you're in a co-housing development, yes, you're first of all a community. Yeah. You share values or okay. you won't be in that community. Yeah. So as a community, you have that discussion before okay. you go to develop and you agree on what you're going to do with rental units. Okay. Prisoner it's dilemma. A big, it's a big... It, there's all, all kinds of dynamics happening that's, here. That's Psychological my, that's as well. That's my point. And, and trust me, yeah. I, I have many people I talk to about this and, and you need to move past the fear of how do we deal with growth. You need to have a, a plan in place. You need to have hope for the future. 
And as you get to the point of bringing, connecting some dots and, and uh, systemizing the discussion and breaking it down into the components that you can build up and have a plan and also demonstrating, hey, it happens elsewhere, people start going, ooh, a little bit more positive. Now they're not so stressed. Mm. Now there's a little bit of hope going on. The fear starts dissipating. Going okay. Forward. Now I'm going to throw a real wrench into the works here. This has got nothing to do with rail. I'm still trying to finish my ah, train track. You now. haven't talked about... <laughs> You want, to, you want to talk more about trains? Well, I was just going to say stations and the land and getting it built. I mean, that's an important component. So you got stations, we've got a country right. partner, and you're building between, and it requires social license. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of this thing is that it is something that the businesses, I'm getting people out of the business community very excited about. They don't want this in 30 years. They don't want it in 20 years. They want it in five years. And they want to separate this. Okay. They want Five years? They want to separate the track discussion from the technology discussion. How are you going to get the land? How are you going to well, negotiate all the land? See, you know, this is one of the questions that we were talking about. First of all, is there a Highway 97 right away from the U.S. border up to the Kamloops? I'm just going to let you out outline this because... It's a yes-no answer. Trust me, the answer is yes. <laughs> Okay. Who are you talking to highway, right now? Highway 97 is the longest <laughs> highway in North America. Okay. It is north-south, goes all the way from Alaska down to Mexico. Mm. And there is right away. That is a major national and international highway. We is that have, longer than Route 66? Absolutely. Longer than 101? Hey, and 105 and whatever you... I yeah. have you. Okay. So it's there. And we have right away in the middle of, beside... On the other side of Highway 97. Okay. That's if the minister wants to go there. All right. Uh, but on the other hand, we have communities that say, wait a sec, it doesn't come hot, close enough to our downtown center. We want a station in our downtown center. So I'll tell you what, Mr. Train Engineer, mm -hmm. we'll give you some right-of-way to come down our streets, and we want a station here. Okay. And then we'll get you back. So really, it's a partnership. We have to have a collaborative discussion with the communities. So have any of these people that are telling you five years is doable, have they done projects before or they're because some that of sounds the richest people in our city <laughs> if you don't mind me saying speaking from my prejudicial implicit bias there's some of it the sounds like a big uh let me just like eating an elephant how did they make their money they're some of the richest people in our city all i'm saying is i've done project engineering i've seen things happen from infant concept phase right through to design and construction and mm -hmm. opening and commissioning and working mm -hmm. and I know what the steps are and you 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 zeroed in on process mm -hmm. it's absolutely process and people are the process but I've also seen when a community gets behind something yeah things can happen really quickly Lindsay and when we have businesses and I, yeah, excited and I don't mean to sound like negative but even even let's say let's say five years from now I moved to this community four years ago a lot, I've seen quite a lot of changes in those four years, and it's been quite surprising. Um, in five years from now, if we went from where we are today to the completion of this vision, you're not talking about the completion of the construction, are you? Are you yep. talking about shovel-ready in five years? Any and all. Any and all. If, 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 if How do you do that okay, and bring the community along? Because five years is really tight time frame. Okay, so we've already been talking here for an hour or two. Mm -hmm. We've come around to the fact that we can agree, if Highways is already talking about expanding the highway... People, a lot of this has been already... That there's a need for yeah. increased transportation capacity. So the right. question is, which mode? How? 
Highway 97 is already there. If they go to expand Highway 97, they're getting actually pushback from communities like Peachland about widening the highway through Peachland. Well, if we came to them and said, we could do something quieter and cleaner, it's called a train. And they're going, and everybody I've talked to, including my cousin who lives, happens to live in Peachland, is excited about a train. Mm -hmm. It can happen very quickly when you say, we think rail technology is the way to go. How fast can you lay track? That's really what it boils down to is once you have the discussion, mm -hmm. you have private partners, mm -hmm. you fix a route, and you start. Now, the other thing you got to know is that doesn't fix the route forever. The beauty of it is that route can be changed. For example, right through the downtown area of Kelowna, so Highway 97, the six-lane monstrosity, you know, we know it has additional right-of-way. We can just be beside it. All the way up it's it's not that big of a deal if you say we're gonna do this to get tracks laid to actually have it happen okay well that's good you know one of the reasons why uh, we're having this conversation is uh, from the very first time that you and I met just a few weeks ago um, you know you obviously bring a lot of uh, energy mm -hmm. and uh, I think in, you show a lot of initiative uh, you have, an, uh, you have an, an intelligent approach to the way you like to solve problems. Um, you're sort of like the engineer's engineer in some aspect because you like, you like, to, you like to identify an issue or a problem and, and create a solution and, and then move directly in that direction, directly to that solution. Um, where I'm going with that is um, can just to change the, the temperature of the conversation a little bit, can you give, give me an example uh, of a project this sort of scale, maybe in your own experience or, or something that you uh, came across in, in your studies for, in other markets? Um, give me an example of like a dispute resolution where mm -hmm. you've got a project, it's underway, and, uh, and all of a sudden there's something unexpected. How about I give you a, f I'll give you two projects. Okay. Um, one involved downtown in Vancouver. Uh, I was hired by the University of British Columbia to introduce UPASS, the Universal Transit or Transportation Pass for 50,000 UBC students at the Point Grey or Vancouver campus. And the mandate was get students on the bus. Right now they're driving from everywhere in the region. They're at risk themselves and others because they're young drivers. They can't afford to be driving and we don't have housing to house them all on campus. It's not a sustainable model, and UBC wants to promote social justice, transport equity, and sustainable community. So I'm hired, I'm, I'm hired. I remember my very first day I went to talk to Translate, the regional transportation authority, and I said, we want to do UPASS. Now, anybody that doesn't know UPASS, there's some great papers by, and you want to reference this possibly, by a fellow named Donald Shoup out of UC Berkeley. He's an economist, uh, and it's called Unlimited Access. And it's the foundation of UPASS, Universal Pass, or uh, for, for students. So I go into Translink and I say, we want to do a UPASS. UBC was required for various reasons. We want to do this. All 50,000 students. And, they, and, and I remember their attitude, because they didn't know too much about it, but they felt, well, I hope you've got $13 million. And, and that was the cost at you know 50,000 times $120 per month for 
a two or three zone bus pass for every student at UBC. And, and so that's a barrier. Number mm -hmm. one, that was unaffordable. What they were really saying is, you're going to require every month $130 paid by every student at UBC to have unlimited access onto the bus. Well, number one, in a free market economy, the students already had access to a bus pass at $130 a month, and they weren't taking it. Only 19% of students were even taking the bus. It didn't go where they needed it. It wasn't good enough. It wasn't enough capacity. They were not impressed. So I went back to the drawing board and we started talking economic models. And so we came up with something called a community revenue neutral model. And that looks community revenue, revenue neutral model. Okay. And the, and the premise is how much does a 19% mode split? So if, if 19 out of 100 students mm -hmm. or whatever that works out to out of 15,000, you know, 19% of 50,000 yeah. uh, are taking the bus, well, how much? Are they actually now paying Translink? Because Translink, you're not getting anything more. That's that's the free market approach. You want to charge them, that's that's how many you're going to get on the bus and that's how many you're going to pay for it. And that worked out to whatever it did, something around four, four to five million dollars. And then we said, okay, um, let's sweeten the pot here. How about if we gave you another half million, million dollars to improve service on top of that? Because students aren't happy with the service levels they're seeing. Let's call it five and a half, six million dollars. And at the end of the day, that's what won the deal. So we, between the community... Um, revenue neutral model. Revenue neutral model, which is essentially saying, look, uh, are you willing to sort of uh, pit, pit, put some skin in the game? Is that another way of rephrasing that? Yes, we, but we didn't say that to just the 19% of the students already riding the bus. We said that to all 100% of students at UBC. We said, listen guys, it's kind of like... Uh, uh, medical insurance, which they also it, yeah. them themselves. What if we could get 100% adoption? Let's plan for that. What would we have to do to make that make economic sense? It's it's a little bit like this backcasting uh, idea. Of Dave. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. So, so, now you've got students that, instead of their being offered a unlimited access for 130 bucks a month, they're being offered it to, for 21 bucks a month. And overnight, transit ridership tripled. We went from 19%, now over 60% of students take transit. Now that process took five years. That was a very involved, almost at times headbutting contest, relationship where trust was a central issue because TransLink had its books and we knew our mode split. So we knew how much money they were getting mm -hmm. and they weren't prepared to say yes, we agree because of business purposes and everything else, hierarchical, government and control and personalities. But we we had a really good idea where they were and what, what they wanted. And we also had very good communications with our students and a great relationship on campus with transportation planners and engineers. And they had their people that were transport economists. And so we hired a third party, an independent consultant to, to house the, the secrets, to handle each side's confidential information to work it out and propose the compromise which was 21 bucks a month. So it went from, like I said, 130 bucks a month down to 21. Mm -hmm. Transit ridership tripled and it increased the quality of service, not just for UBC students, but the entire GVRD region because they put more buses and more hours into all the service routes that you, students used, right? Which mm -hmm. are all of them. Mm -hmm. It was so successful that they noticed a 7% drop in traffic on the Lionsgate Bridge. Mm. Like that is 
in that's traffic big. engineering that's terms, big. that's a quantitative reduction in congestion. You can take that to the bank. That actually saved people hours of time. We did a. That's a good question. Yes. So you take that seven percent. You've just uh, you've just unpacked a fantastic way to say, hey, we've we can create an economic solution here. Now you've, like you say, now you've got some, uh, you've created some bandwidth in that pipeline. Mm -hmm. That's seven percent. Uh, how does that work? How does that work if you are at the municipal level of government or maybe provincial? I'd like to actually know which one it is. But then how do you leverage against that 7% extra bandwidth in terms well, of continuing down that economic track? Okay, so the Lionsgate Bridge is actually was built by West Bend. I think it's now a municipal highway. Um, so it, that, that's a provincial benefit in terms of wear and tear on the bridge. But more importantly, it's travel time benefit. It's all the commuters that are getting faster service because they, they, their trips look shorter. Right. But so instead of stuffing more cars into that 7% uh, vacancy, could say uh, there's other ways to measure right but they're still happy so they don't even use the bus they're still happy and the students they just saved a hundred bucks a month okay We're so this, these are quality of life absolutely uh, aspects. so the students are saving collectively about a million dollars a month mm -hmm. commuters are probably saving ten times that amount because they're saving travel time which has a value time value we know right? yeah and congestion think about the safety we haven't brought in the safety benefits Reduce congestion, reduce crashes, reduce young drivers, reduce crashes, reduce stress, the health benefits, it's active transport, getting on and off a bus, walking to it, it's fantastic. So, so are we long, yeah, so it sounds to me like we're, we're long past the days of like when I was in university and using public transit, um, there was a bit of a stigma attached to it. Loser cruiser. The loser cruiser. Absolutely. The loser cruiser. So the 99B line is now the bus, but... It still has a stigma because when it gets crowded and there are students that get left, left, they get passed by at bus stops, Lindsay. That's how popular it is. So guess what they're doing now? They're putting in light rail out to UBC. And now you're going to have the final, the ultimate solution of mass transit, as you call it, or light rail. Or because it's urban, it is light rail and it's, it's mass transit. When it's between cities, though, it's regional. It's probably more appropriate to say regional passenger rail. And in my case, I wanted electric, as right. we already talked about. So it's regional electric passenger rail. So that's, can, that's can we key. Just, can we just go to a bullet train? High-speed rail requires all sorts of engineering requirements that we cannot do in a valley with curvilinear lakes and mountains. It's just too expensive. It's, it's $400 million a mile. I want something that's $2 million a mile. Yeah, but bullet train sounds better. Well, it's easier it to sound say. sound better? Hydrail, too. How about just over PR? Okanagan Valley Electric Regional Passenger Rail. I like over bullet PR. train. I like bullet train. Have you oh been? What, you've been on a bullet train. You know what they're like. I Aren't those great? The Shenkensen. I haven't been in Japan. No? I've been in the train between Shanghai and Beijing. And, and, and also in, 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 the, in the maglev coming out of the airport in Shanghai. Very cool. Isn't that Very cool? Absolutely. I've been on the Paris... Grand Vitesse. Uh, right. The, yeah, I've been on high-speed trains, but it's the first. The first. The first time I was on a high-speed train was in Italy. Yes, but you got to remember the density now comes into it. But four hundred million dollars a mile. But you know who designs trains in Italy? Ferrari. That's right. <laughs> the first time I was on a high-speed train, I was I was on a Ferrari. You were. I'll tell you, those seats 
Those seats, that was worth the price of admission. I think I had to pay 15 euro. This is a few years ago. But man, you know, if you're going from Rome to Pisa to Florence to Venice, like, it's just, what an experience. That is not a loser cruiser. I know trains aren't looked at upon as, as loser cruisers. Buses can because they're doy do do rubber tired and they're weaving and, and they're stopping. The turkey, the jerky. And, uh, and the whole yeah. thing. Trains are smooth into the station. So let's talk about time. Yeah. Uh, would I, would I, would it take me more time to travel uh, or less time to travel if I get on the train and I want to go A to B? It's probably going to take more time. It's, it'll take more time. Probably because we're going to go, you're going to go highway speeds between cities. Yeah. City speeds in cities. Yeah. And you're going to stop at stations. But it's going to be quicker than any bus and it'll be less stressful and safer than any car. Well, and then you can add productivity in that because if you're not herky-jerky, you can actually maybe be productive. Uh, Sleep, socialize. Yeah. Absolutely. Type. Sounds pretty great. Oh, it is. It is. I mean, I tried. I mean, I came in here purposely with a bad attitude, you know. <laughs> I made sure I was up late last night. I, made, I had to take a friend to the airport this morning, so I was underslept. I didn't eat. Uh, and I was like, um, you know, I... Because you've got a, a pretty big personality. You do. You like to win people over. You like to laugh. You like I to like enjoy it when people yourself. are happy. Happy you people like make happy and engineers. Like, and I was like, he's not, he's not going to win me over. <laughs> I'm going to remain impartial. But no, but your, your energy and your enthusiasm, it, that's valuable. That's valuable. So There is one other thing I want to say, and, th and this goes back to an interview comment you made, and that is, uh, can we really do something in five years? Well, if we don't start something, and, and we said about the discussion, it, it will never happen. But you, you can have several generations of rail and rail alignment and ultimate configuration. For example, the rails could run right now on existing Highway 97 along the side of it. And then as portions of Highway 97 either get undergrounded or moved or widened or whatever, the rail gets moved. Right? What really is going to make it sound easy? Well, it's an engineering problem. It's you start and then you get better. You you learn, right? It's refining the solution as you go. It's adaptive management. It's, you know, I not? wanted to end on a positive note here, Gord, but my my sense of realism is kicking in. And anytime <laughs> you've got these massive infrastructure projects, doesn't matter if you're talking about LNG at, in Kitimat or Site C Dam, which is incredibly contentious, still contentious. Um, these ballooning budgets. Um, yes, I know. Let's be realistic. Well, remember at the start of the conversation? I said $2 million a kilometer, 200 kilometers. And you're going, wait a sec, that's not a billion. That's only $400 million. And I'm saying, well, double it. Let's use a round number for discussion. I've got a more than 100% contingency on this thing. But this but this idea, like, you can easily move and, and you know, this isn't... Uh, I this have is a, a video for you. Okay. It's called... Okay, you're going to send that to me, then, then I have to post that and it, share that. It's recover... Well, I don't know if I can because it's BNSF. This is one of the courses I teach. But it's recovering yes. after Katrina, Hurricane Katrina, Katrina, sorry, not Katrina, it's Katrina. And BNSF had to go in... And here's how easy it is, or I should say challenging, but doable, is moving tracks. The hurricane literally blew tracks off a 10-mile bridge. So it was one of the longest lakes in, in the Gulf Coast. 
and it's an urban lake that connects various parts of Houston to um, um, Alabama, Mobile, Alabama. And the hurricane literally picked up a set of tracks and every all, all the ties and threw it into the lake. Now it was continuous welded rail. So, and that's the current technology. We have quarter mile, half mile, mile long segments of rail. And it, so it, they just picked it up, it, put it back in place. A ribbon of steel, absolutely. So if you had to move a oh, rail, this it's is not as hard about. as you make oh, it. So we're not talking 39 feet bolt, 39 feet another bolt, 39 feet next bolt, clickety clackety clickety clack, 1910. This is why. This is why. Uh, uh, people like me with a d with a design background need to work more alongside people like you with the with the practical solutions because um, I can see you know I didn't want to admit this but I I might have something to learn here from from you I didn't want you know I know this feeds directly into your massive ego absolutely but <laughs> expanding expanding <laughs> okay one more thing here. Um, you're running for municipal politics for you want you want to become a councillor uh, a city councillor for uh, Kelowna why why city council Can, because in, in in the context of this train discussion what about what about provincial or federal I mean you've, you've obviously got a big vision here Wow if you could help me understand this because um, p3 that's a big that's a big thing to take on. What can the municipal government do and what are the limits of what they can do? That's, that's, that's awesome. So let me answer it in two ways. Why and what? Why am I running municipally? Because I'm a rookie. I'm an engineer and this is my community. Kelowna is my community. Yes, it's my valley, but this is this is where I teach. You know, I've taught over 2,800 students over the last 13 years when I helped launch the, the School of Engineering. Municipal is the hardest is what I've heard from colleagues, a level to be at and involved in, but it's also most directly engaged with what's happening on the ground. And it's what I'm most intimately familiar with. Whereas federal and provincial, as I've already mentioned, coming in to talk about double stacking a highway in my community, that offends me. That offends me. That really upsets me, which is why it also was one of those, those, those markers of why I started to decide it's time for me to run is I think I offer experience and expertise in these areas as we've been talking about because that's what I do research and teaching in. And they happen to match really almost exactly Kelowna's issues around affordability, housing, transportation, safety, and all that. So I want to start at the municipal level as the champion to get the discussion started. And I, I'm not going to be pretentious enough, although I have the ego, as you've already said, to say, yeah, hey, let's go for prime minister. But honestly, this is a local issue, and I think the best way to start the discussion mm -hmm. is through relationships at the local issue. If it got to a valley-wide discussion and we needed some provincial champions, well, then maybe I'm going to reach out to them, let the province come in. I've already reached out to the minister to say, I would like you to start including passenger rail in your transportation discussions because I think that's going forward the more sustainable funding model and transport safety model and capacity model. You need to start in, in obviously in environment model. Okay. So that's why I'm focused more on local because mm -hmm. and that's not, is, that's not happening right now. You're, you've made a request. At the provincial at level the provincial. I've asked them and it's so recently that I haven't had a response back. 
But at the same time, we have a beautiful quality of life in this valley. We have to act on. We're at a very important crossroads where we can continue to plan for cars and traffic or people and places. And we have to say no. If we're going to protect our environment, which is really the secret to our quality of life, our beautiful lake, our beautiful mountains, our beautiful air, and our beautiful ALR food security-wise, then we have to plan for people and places because if we plan for more traffic and more cars, that is going to pollute and drive people away. It already is. It's eroding our tourism. This is what I've been hearing. It's also going to pollute our water, our soil, our air, and we've just lost our natural quality of life that we call, and we're proud to call, Kelowna. So we, we really, it, it has to start at the local. The, and, and for me, I'm prepared to throw the hat in the ring. I live here, and UBC allows me, my employer, to be a local politician in municipal politics without having to quit. And quite frankly, I love my job. I'm, I have what they call died and gone to engineer's heaven because I get to mentor and teach and learn from, as well as teach, the next generation of community planners and engineers. So I, I don't okay. want to go provincial because that would mean I'd have to leave this. Okay, so you've answered the why. What about the what? Uh, uh, authority, jurisdiction for the municipality. So yeah. we control our land use, we control our roads. Provincial Highway 97 is a provincial highway, but we have a partnership with them. So we, and our boundary stops at the lake and just past, uh, up, up towards Lake Country, at the, at the signal of Highway 97 past the airport. So we have a lot of influence over a core piece where the regional economic driver, let's face it, Kelowna is the regional economic driver. We're also a high-tech hub because of the university here. So, so for us, that's our jurisdiction. It holds a lot of influence. Okay. And it will help us start the discussion. And we can influence our neighbors. We know, and I've talked to planners and engineers up and down the valley, they want it too. Now it's just going to involve partnerships. That's exciting. Uh, so I'm just going to conclude on, on a final remark, which is to say you mentioned that you, know, you, you feel that we're at an inflection point here in the valley. That's also uh, a core reason why uh, I'm producing this uh, podcast. Now, why, why did I bring that up? I think that I'm probably not going to know any more in this lifetime than mm. I know right now. Mm. Or it's called right? giving, giving back. Giving back. Giving back. Yeah. And so a big part of my motivation for, for doing this conversation and others like it, mm. there's a lot of latent potential, a lot mm. of latent ability, and a lot of latent leadership in our communities, absolutely. Uh, at younger and younger ages, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if I think uh, people 10, 15 years younger than me, very capable, very confident, and so on, they, they, they see, uh, I think, at a, a higher level of granularity than I did, you know, if I think back uh, 10, 15 years in, in my own experience. And so if there's a way that I, where, where I can use uh, a forum like this mm. to try to communicate some of that information uh, to the broader community, it's not just about younger, uh, you know, really to every, every aspect of our community, mm -hmm. to uh, get a little more engaged, mm -hmm. stay curious, um, show some initiative, break out of your, uh, your silos if you're in a social silo, Talk to people who maybe make you uncomfortable and uneasy. Test those ideas. One of my one of my big uh, 
personal uh, mantras, if you want to call it that, for myself is I can't control outcomes, but I can make choices. Mm. And so to that end, um, thank you for coming today. And if, if, we can, if we can sort of end on this note, um, I'll give you the final word. But I'd just like to thank you for coming. And helping to unpack some of these things is very valuable for me. Um, and it's encouraging for me. I, I'm going to continue to make invitations to people uh, on campus and off campus, um, leaders in, in professional areas, business, uh, culture, the arts, um, that whole social sphere that, that you referenced before, and, um, and seeing if we can't make improvements in our community, mental health and sustainability, and, um, and advance the conversation. So I'm going to give you the last word, but thank, thank you for coming today. Well, I want to shake your hand if that's allowed. I, I thank you for the opportunity. I, I'm, I'm telling you, Lindsay, um, it's exciting because I would not think an average person would want to watch two hours of you and I having a conversation. I know. This is a wonderful thing. <laughs> in, in, in fact, if, he, if 15 people watch this and, and that's it, I will be, I will be so relieved but, because but, then I can go and do other things. But, but here, here, and, and I don't want to sound grandiose, but, but if, if, if I could just say that if... This will help our next generation of leaders, who are already, by the way, leading in their own sphere of influence, and everybody has within them the potential to be a leader, and, and at various scales, right? And we're all on a journey together to just take up the torch to help continue to contribute to a great community. That would be enough for me. That's really my goal in everything I do, and I, I, I'm in a profession that I get to be driven by my passions and I got to tell you it's it's exciting times to be in our school of engineering to be involved in the community and to offer to give back to the community and it it, it is disconcerting and, and you made a uh, you made a reference to the next generation that they aren't more engaged and I think it's because they're still in the the, the journey they're still learning and so they, they they're busy yeah uh, so I'm hoping when they're not so busy they can check this out and make a decision on how to vote because if they don't vote they're kind of getting what our generation wants and as we know our generation has a car centric mentality for the majority and and this is not the future that we know that we have on research from millennials that they want so we need we need to engage millennials that will push a more sustainability oriented outcome to go into the future and say, this is what we want, and vote for leaders and vote for change that get us from where we are now to that, which is, we know, going to require some radical movement, radical change, which will cause some potential economic shock if we aren't ready and see it coming. I think that's the next challenge. That could be part of the last uh, that last mile. It's called community. Community it is. Community. Thank you, sir. Thank you. It's been a slice. Fine.
Somebody help me, cause I can't. 